Hey, Jesse. Hey, Katie. Hey, did you see um, we got a nice new review on iTunes from a woman named Karen Lowe? Whoa, 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 whoa. Hold on. That That's not cool. Did, did you just use the K word? What, what's the K word? The K word, which I'm not going to say, is a slur. Didn't you see that tweet from the feminist writer Julie Bindle? She wrote, does anyone else think that the uh, slur is woman-hating and based on class prejudice? And as an ardent feminist, I agree with that completely. You shouldn't use that word. And you're talking about the word Karen, right? No, no, no. You can't, you can't say that. It's a slur. <laughs> if I identify as a Karen, can I say the word Karen? I suppose so. I mean, I don't know what the ethics are here. It's tricky. Um, maybe there's an argument that because you're saying someone's name rather than using it as a slur... You can say the K word, but maybe should we drop the R maybe? Should we try it that way? Yeah, yeah, let's try that. What does that sound like? I guess, what was her name? Karen. No, Karen. <laughs> Karen Lowe, you said? Is it Karen Lowe? It's, it's Karen Lowe. This, this just sounds like so horrifically ableist. This sounds like you're just like mocking people who can't say their R's, which I'm fine with. Look, I... Again, Katie, I'm a feminist. We're going to call this very nice woman, Ken Lowe. Thank you for the nice uh, review, Ken. What's the, should we read the review so people can, um, so people can know what we're talking about? Uh, okay. Irreverent at times, but coming from a place of truly trying to understand things as they are, not as they quote, should be according to a certain narrow, but often prescriptive point of view. I think that, uh, that nicely sums it up, right? I think it's pretty good. Although my favorite review on iTunes so far was the one that was um, whiny, but in a good way. I think that that <laughs> whiny what we're not. I think whiny. that's a pretty good personal brand and pretty accurate. Okay, but back to this back to this Ken thing thing real quickly. Yeah. So Julie Bendel, who's as you mentioned, the feminist writer in the UK. So she had an interesting take on this. So she was arguing that the word, I'm just going to say it, Karen. I'm literally shaking. Yeah, is um, is classist because she says that it's used against working class women, which I think is a little inaccurate because from the, the discourse that I picked up, Karen seems to be a stereotype of sort of a middle class woman. And I'm pretty sure it's okay to make fun of middle class women. Yeah, they're the they're the main cause of um, Trump and fascism. In fact, right, white ones in particular. What it, was it? Karen is another version of what's the other stereotypical white woman name? I thought there was uh, another one. Oh, there's okay. So there's Becky. Is Becky. that does that count? Yeah, I think Karen is basically Becky, right? Are they sisters? Maybe. Yeah, they're sisters. You know, so a, so a Karen is a woman who complains to the manager, according to the discourse. Correct. I think so. Yeah. So I'm I am actually kind of a Karen. Um, I don't complain to a manager oftentimes, but I have like one particular pet peeve that does bring out my inner Karen, and that's I fucking cannot stand when people listen to music or TV or anything on their phones in public without headphones, Yeah, especially on public transit. And uh, back in the pre-COVID days and in, in the before COVID, um, I took a ferry to work and it was very frequent on my ferry that people would like watch TV or play video games or listen to music on their phones without headphones. 
And so I would say something to them about it. Um, and because I sort of cosplay as a fairy worker, like I wear like I wear Carhartt overalls every day and I wear <laughs> a giant and I commute by bike. So I wear I, I like went to the store where I went to the store called Whistle Workwear, which is like where like working men get their their work clothes, like the construction outfits, uniforms, maybe is the word. <laughs> and I got this like extremely bright yellow raincoat, the kind that you would wear if you were working on a road crew like that, like high visibility. And so I look like a fairy worker. And so I use that as a way to get people to shut the fuck up on the ferry to turn their music down. And it actually works pretty well. So I'm not complaining directly to the manager. I'm like stealing the manager's valor. Yeah, you're, you're appropriating the valor. I am. Yeah, I'm appropriating the valor and I'm um, I'm enforcing some social regulation. And you know what? Somebody has to do it. So I'm a self-identified Karen and I'm proud of it. I think you're a hero. Katie, what podcast are people currently listening to? This is Blocked and Reported, the one and only podcast about the internet on the internet. And I'm Katie Herzog. The only one. Yes, the only one. I'm Jesse Single, and we can't emphasize that enough. Before this podcast, no one ever discussed the internet. And this explains why we're we're rolling in the millions. We're going to talk about a few things today. We're going to talk about online validity discourse, which we will explain. We're going to talk about a mistake, uh, shockingly, an online publication made about the Canadian Army, an institution we all hold dear to our hearts. And then what is the last thing we're going to discuss? I already forgot. Uh, we are going to discuss a contrarianism in the time of coronavirus. Ah, uh, yes. But yeah, let's start by, um, Katie, I haven't followed this story closely, but in reading the coverage, my understanding is that the Canadian army is going to execute all cisgender members of the armed force, forces there. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, hopefully. That's um, that's. <laughs> so what was this, this blow up about? Okay, so this was a pretty minor blow up, I would say. But so there's an outlet in Canada called the Post Millennial and sort of a knee jerk anti woke anti SJW publication. So I'm going to I'm just going to pull up the website right now and see what their headlines are. Give me one second. Okay, so today's headline. This is like the this is the the, the main headline on their um, on their website today. Trudeau's second home undergoing 8.6 million tax funded res- uh, renovation. And then under that, coronavirus revision shows higher death toll than previously reported in Canada. It's very anti-Trudeau. And they do a little bit of like investigative reporting and breaking stories, but it's mostly cultural analysis. So last week, they published an article with the headline exclusive in all caps. Canadian Armed Forces requires all personnel to stop using gendered pronouns. So I saw this um, on my Twitter feed. I'd woken up at like four o'clock in the morning because my puppy has this this like strange habit of like walking into my room at four o'clock in the morning and demanding to be fed for some reason. Um, and so I, I like, thought you were, I thought you were going to say that you wake up at four a.m. every day to make sure people are still using gendered pronouns. <laughs> Every day, 4 a.m. is my is my hour. Um, so uh, I woke up at 4 o'clock in the morning and saw this headline. And I like sort of read the post, but it was also like 4 a.m. And I didn't read it closely at all. Uh, and so I tweeted about it. And here's what I tweeted. Lol, this is so fucking dumb. He and she are out, but they is in. So in an effort to reduce misgendering, they're requiring troops to misgender 99.9999999% of the population. And this got a bunch of retweets and comments and people were agreeing with me that this was fucking dumb. Um, and uh, then someone um, pointed out that I didn't seem like I'd really read the article, which was actually true. And so what if you actually read the article, what it says is that they're requiring superiors 
in the Canadian military to use gender neutral pronouns on personnel documents. So, or they can refer to people's uh, like military status or their name, but they can't use he and she, they can only use they. And I, I will say, I still think this is fucking dumb. I, like they are going to end up misgendering a lot of people because there's this idea that they is sort of, because they is a gender neutral pronoun, it's not misgendering. Like everybody's a they. Well, that's not actually true. They is actually a pronoun that nine binary sp- people specifically choose. You know, they adopt that pronoun to, to uh, affirm their identity or make a political statement or whatever. And most people don't. So I do think they are going to be mis- I, like, it would personally bother me to, to read a personnel document that referred to me as they, because they isn't my pronoun. Um, so I still think it's fucking dumb, but I did tweet this thing without entirely reading it. And the headline was misleading. Right. Um, and so this was a, you know, and when you did, when you read the piece, it did sort of go into what the new rule is. They did cite this particular rule. It doesn't, I haven't seen this really covered anywhere else, but from like far right Canadian media or like the Christian post or whatever. Um, and I don't think they got this story wrong, but the headline was misleading. It made it seem like, you know, all troops now will be required to refer to each to their coworkers essentially as they, which is lol fucking dumber. Um, but it was also a very good reminder to me that yeah. if I see something that confirms my my, you know, preconceived bias about <laughs> about the Canadian military. I should read it closely. Every episode, I have to edit out hours of you ranting about the Canadian military. You know what? The fucking Mounties. Wait, are they, are they, do they count <laughs> no, as military? No, they're not. That's the, poli- that's the police. <laughs> okay, well, fuck the police too. Fuck the Canadian police. All Mounties are bastards. That's what I'm saying, Jesse. Amen. <laughs> wow, very, uh, very controversial. Okay, so yeah, I mean, this was just one of those examples. I've fallen for this too, where you get outraged, you retweet something. People of us in media in particular shouldn't do it. It sounds like this is like a silly policy, but not as extreme as they, uh, as the post-millennial headline made it out to be. And I guess I'm just reminded of like, no matter how many times I tell myself not to do this, I still do it. And Twitter just activates the worst and most credulous parts of us and we should none of us should be on it at all ever the whole the whole site should be destroyed you and it does absolutely like there were i got like more engagement on this tweet than my like really important tweets like pictures of my dog you know what i mean like like there is this you are rewarded for tapping into outrage um you know it's a problem with the platform but you know we're well aware of that and um we should hold each other to higher standards, which is why you're making me talk about this fucking thing on the podcast. Exactly. I just want you to do better. Do better, Katie. I will. I promise. I will do best. Yeah. Well, I mean, that actually ties into the next thing we want to talk about incentives wise, because, well, you you had mentioned this whole Alex Berenson coronavirus thing. So should we uh, jump to that? Yeah, let's talk about that. Um, so were you familiar with Eric, with Alex Berenson before this like latest kerfuffle? Katie, I thought you read every single thing I ever wrote. I um, <laughs> have you read about him? Yeah, he had a recent book come out about that was very alarmist about marijuana, and I ended up actually doing two pieces, one of them a Q and A from New York Magazine about it. Okay, great. Okay, maybe you can. So I like I was outraged about about the weed book, but um, I didn't actually read the weed book. Um, so um, so I'm glad to hear that you did. So we should uh, we should back up a little bit. So Alex Berenson is a investigative report, a former investigative reporter with the New York Times, who covered. Um, I think he covered the pharmaceutical industry mainly yeah. for like ten years, and um, he he left 
the Times at some point and and started writing like spy novels. Um, and then last year he put out this book that you mentioned about um, about cannabis. And so and weed people fucking hated this book. I don't know how many of them actually read it, but weed people fucking hated this book. So so will you talk a little bit about the book, considering that you've actually read it? Yeah, I mean it was called Tell Your Children the Truth About Marijuana, Mental Illness, and Violence, and it basically. It takes this little kernel of truth, which is that I think in the understandable rush to roll back horrible pot laws and to not lock up black kids for like having a dime bag or whatever, sometimes people overstate how confident we should be that, for example, smoking a lot of pot couldn't have a negative impact on like a 14-year-old. I think there's outlying cases where marijuana can have you know, pretty negative effects on people. I don't think it's nearly as bad as alcohol. Experts argue about this stuff. He took this kernel of truth and sort of bloomed it into this very scary, almost reefer madness-like tale that, in my opinion and the opinion of a lot of other people who, who are much more familiar with the literature than I am, involved really selectively examining the evidence and, and not paying attention to the full brunt of the evidence and making it out as though marijuana was a is a really pressing threat to young people and that this should affect you know, legislation going forward. So that was that was why he was um, controversial last year. And then... So he, he's, he's basically a buzzkill. He's a buzzkill. He clearly is not high enough. He should be smoking more pot because he would that would make him chill out. You know, as somebody who has been smoking pot for a, a long time, like including when I was 14 years old, I will say he is absolutely right. I would be so much fucking smarter if I hadn't started smoking pot when I was 12 years old. But I haven't actually read the book, so... I feel like you're the right amount of smart. Like you're very smart, oh, but I can you. understand everything you say. You're not you're not too smart, so it works out. Right. Well, who would want to be too smart? No, especially like podcasting, it doesn't work if you're too smart. Right. Being not too smart also keeps me in touch with the people. <laughs> you are a woman of the people. Uh, a, I am a woman of the people. Okay, so Alex Berenson is in the in the the news again because he has emerged as something as a coronavirus contrarian. So he's been uh, tweeting a lot, and he has a um, a particular sort of style of tweet. I would say um, it's maybe condescending would be the word. He definitely seems to think that he's the smartest guy in the room, and that he's the only person who sort of sees the truth about coronavirus, which to him is that shutting down that shutting down the economy is going to have a much greater impact on human lives than the virus itself i would say um and so he agreed to do an interview with with this reporter from vice magazine and he had all of these qualifications before he would participate in this interview with laura wagner and it was basically like I'm not going to talk to you on the phone. I'm going to answer your questions, and that's it. You can't annotate them, um, and you must publish it verbatim, which is a, a sort of crazy demand for anybody working or any for any interview subject, much less someone who's actually worked in the media and who knows that like the normal response to that would be like basically no. Um, so, so he answers these questions via email. She asks some very good questions. He answers them via email, and then. She sends follow-ups, which is an absolutely normal thing to do. And instead of answering her follow-up questions, most of which were pretty good, he published the email thread on Twitter. Um, and it caused this like huge pile-on with a lot of people in the media in particular, basically like calling this guy out and um, sort of directing their, like, their energy for the day on this guy. Um, and then so there have been a bunch of follow-up pieces about this. But I think it's interesting because it brings up the place of the contrarian in a global crisis. And 
like, let me preface this by saying that by publishing these emails, he he made himself look kind of crazy and also like an asshole. And he didn't like by refusing to answer her follow up questions. He didn't explain his position in a way that would have maybe made his position seem stronger. So he really shot himself in the foot by doing this. When you, so Laura Wagner posted this, uh, she published the whole entire interview on Vice along with the follow up questions that he refused to ask. And when I read it, you know, I wasn't, I didn't come away from the interview thinking like, oh, this guy's a conspiracy theorist. Like his his recommendations are pretty normal. Like yeah. what he's arguing is essentially is that everybody's talking about the need for testing. But what most public health and government officials are talking about is testing people to find out who is currently infected with the virus, right? So we're all talking about that. We need more widespread testing. What he's saying is that what we really need is is randomized, is widespread randomized antibody testing, which will tell us who has had the virus and who has recovered from the virus. And that'll actually tell us how widespread it is. And I'm not an epidemiologist. Then again, like the people like dogpiling him on Twitter were mostly not epidemiologists either. But that makes intuitive sense to me because it's possible that this virus is what is much more widespread throughout the community. And that would actually probably be a good thing in some ways because it would mean that there's more immunity to it or there's more there's more exposure and more people have recovered without even sort of knowing that they have it. Um, and it, it it's one of these things where like, He's become, because he's a contrarian, he, like he's arguing for, you know, opening up the economy, but not sort of doing it all at once. He's arguing for, for targeted and localized steps, you know, opening schools because young people aren't, are, you know, aren't very susceptible to the virus and the evidence that they can spread it is actually sort of lower than, or he says the, the evidence that they're, you know, that they're these like vectors of transmission is actually lower than thought. Um, and so he's, the things that he's arguing for are basically like a more Swedish approach to this. Um, and I think that there's something really valuable in having this conversation. You know, maybe I, I have a little bit more sympathy towards him because I have at times taken a contrarian position on some issues. This like the reaction to him, this desire that it seems like the desire to get him to shut the fuck up or to like make fun of him until he stops is really destructive because we need to be having this conversation, you know, and at the same time, like he's been embraced by sort of the right wing. And so he becomes a sort of useful idiot on Fox News, or he appears to be from the outside to be a sort of useful idiot on Fox News. But he is, I think, bringing up points that we should be debating because this shit is bad. I mean, like I talked to people this week. I talked to two different people this week who are going to fucking file for bankruptcy because their small businesses can no longer pay their vendors. So they're getting like PPP loans to keep people employed, but they're still going to go bankrupt, you know? And these are like people who own small businesses and small towns in America. And this is going to happen all over the fucking country. Like this could be the end of small towns and small businesses as we know it. It's just like, I'm so concerned about what the world looks like after this is over, that the idea that we can't talk about, you know, the possibility that the economy could reopen sooner than later, I just, I think it's destructive. Yeah, I mean, I think it's complicated. I think in certain ways, you're going too soft on him. Because like, um, you know, if he's just saying we need a shitload more testing, that's obviously true. He seems to, like, okay, I, I'm from New York, I live in New York. And, and, the shutdown has been horrible and is really hurting a lot of people. But the alternate alternative of, of 
taking much lighter um, action and, and having an epidemic rage through a densely populated city. I just think he's been a little bit too glib about the possibility of what could happen if people hadn't taken such action. And I don't think he's always relying on the firmest basis of evidence, although I'm also biased because, you know, I read his pot book. I didn't think that was good. I, I think the point where we agree is I don't like the idea of like labeling someone a contrarian and saying, therefore, they can't be trusted, because I think there's actually way less of a correlation than people think between what expert bodies say and what the truth is. And you and I have both come written about subjects where like expert bodies put out ridiculous guidelines. I, I happen to think this is not one of them. I think there were major screw ups in how this was handled, particularly by the Trump administration. But um, I, I just think, you know, there's going to be horrible economic damage, but I think everything would be worse, including the economic damage. If this, if this isn't, you know, uh, taking someone under control, if the curb curve isn't flattened as it were. So I guess, Maybe it's just like it. Maybe it's too complicated to have a specific stance on the contrarianism thing because is if the if there's if he's right, it's right because he has the correct evidence and he's managed to pick the correct evidence out of a big pile of evidence pointing in different directions. If he's wrong, which I think he is on most things, it's because he's picked the wrong evidence. It's not just whether or not he happens to disagree with a lot of people, and also, you know, in the Fox universe, he's now a hero, and a lot of people there agree with him. So, right, but I think that this is part of the problem is that you know we talked in one of our earlier episodes about whether coronavirus is going to kill the culture war, and I think this is really good evidence that it's not because the response to the virus has now become a, you know a, a battle in the culture war with the left saying we need to you know indefinitely close the economy and the right saying we need to open it indefinitely or open it immediately and really this should not be about fucking politics no. this should be about epidemiology this should be about uh, and the and what economists say i mean this should be about what experts say the problem though i mean as you mentioned it's not hard for me to see why people don't trust experts. And like, no, like, not at all. Like Washington State. So I was covering the, va the vape crisis for The Stranger, the paper that I work for. And the same people who are now advising Governor Inslee about COVID. And I think that Governor Inslee has done really a, a very good job. You know, Washington State was one of the first to get cases of the virus, shut things down immediately. I mean, obviously, there's been like crazy repercussions right now. We have about 20% unemployment in the state. And the state had a, like one of the strongest economies in the country. And now it's just fucking dying. So the same people who are advising Governor Inslee on COVID were also the same people who advised Governor Inslee to ban flavored vape cartridges in response to the vape crisis so the same so they gave them they gave they gave him this insane recommendation and he signed a law banning fla the sale of flavored vapes in washington state because there were black market vapes coming in from china that were killing people you know in a relatively small number of people across the united states there were a handful of deaths in washington states but these were not vape like vape pens or vape cartridges or whatever that people were buying at the stores you know legally uh were purchasing legally at the stores in washington state they were being they were getting sick because they were buying them from the black market so the public health experts in washington state advised the governor to ban the sale of the legal the safe legal vape pens. Right. And so what does that mean? That means that people go buy them from the fucking black market where they're more likely to get the bad ones. And so when I see those, when I hear the same names of the same people advising him on COVID, honestly, like, I know that I'm supposed to trust the experts. I do. But I have a little bit of a hard time when like, 
it's like we're also focused on the thing that we do and what public health people do. Like in that case. Sure, but, but we should just – I don't want to like let um, – ignore smart public health people. Like a smart, competent public health person actually would make that comparison and, and understand – like people substitute – yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, they would be talking about harm reduction. And there were, um, there were certainly people, certainly like the smart public health people certainly made that argument. But I'm talking about literally the same people who are, you know, who are advising my governor right now are also the, 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 the non-smart public health people who are saying you have to ban mango flavored vapes because black market vapes from China are killing people. And like one of the crazier things about the, about the like the Washington state vape ban. So they let like... Okay, so they banned all these flavors, like all the fruit flavors or whatever, because they think that kids are are more likely to to like get the fruity flavors, right? So they used the vape crisis to ban the flavors. Here's the one flavor that they didn't ban: tobacco flavor. So this thing that is used as a as like a harm reduction tool to get people to stop smoking, they force them to go back to the flavor of the thing that they were trying to avoid. It's just like so fucking right. nonsensical. And yeah. now I hear these people at press conferences with my governor advising him on, on COVID. And honestly, like, I'm a little bit skeptical. Yeah. So I guess the question, which doesn't have an easy answer, is like, when when do you trust experts and when do you not? And I guess what annoys me is, look, I'm ver- I'm annoyed by Berenson. I wish he would <laughs> do better, for lack of a better phrase. But, but this assumption that his error is not trusting experts unquestioningly. I, I think that's totally false because experts are wrong all the time. I think people want to imagine there's a straightforward heuristic here to get to the right answer that just involves, you know, trusting experts. They, they know what they're doing when history is rife with examples of experts getting stuff wrong. So I don't know, maybe people just need to have like a little bit more of a, I guess like the fancy philosophical term is like epistemic humility and understand that, we don't really know, and we often don't even know what we don't know. Like a lot of our beliefs about everything, including climate change, I really just am trusting a bunch of experts and the fact that there's a big consensus on that. I could not tell you anything but the bare basics of how any of that works. And I think if most people introspect honestly, they'll realize on any complicated subject, they don't actually know why they believe what they believe. They're guided by their sort of ideology and social ties and and just what they're supposed to believe leads them to believe a certain thing so everyone should just be admit we should all admit that we're very dumb yeah and you know and once you realize this like like i had this realization over the past couple years you know i've sort of gone through this sort of not i haven't changed my politics but i've sort of gone through a, a sort of ideological evolution in some ways once you realize this, it's it is sort of a, a weird like a red pill moment when it's like, oh shit, I actually don't know what is real and what is not. I believe in climate change because the people I trust on the media believe in climate change. I believe that smoking causes cancer because you know the people I trust believe, say that smoking causes cancer. And of course, I still believe that smoking causes cancer, and I still believe in climate change. But that's not because I actually understand the you know the mechanisms here. It's just because I trust the people who are saying the thing. And then when you stop trusting people, when you stop trusting the media or stop trusting science, it sort of it, it like fucks with your head. Um, I definitely like you know I, I haven't like started believing in that the world was built in six days or something because I don't understand geology. But, <laughs> right. you know, you can get sort of, um, you can get yourself into these sort of, you know, dark holes of what is what is real and what is not. Well, and, but we talked about this a few episodes. I mean, that's what's so scary about the present moment is there's healthy skepticism of realizing experts don't always get stuff uh, right. And then there's like tinfoil hat, apocalyptic, the entire CDC is lying. Anthony Fauci is a deep state agent. And there's a 
disturbingly large chunk of the country who are now protesting in states across the country who who don't believe any of this. They don't they barely believe coronavirus is real. So that that's part of the reason like I don't want to give you know, I, I don't want to just pile on Berenson endlessly because what's that going to accomplish? He's not going to change what he does. But like it does fuel some of this stuff. And and there was an interesting Vanity Fair article about how he's now become a darling of the right. And he goes on Hannity, although I think even, even Hannity pushed back on him a little bit. But he – we've both experienced this. Once you're seen as a contrarian, certain uh, opportunities arise. And like if, if either of us was actually conservative or a Trump supporter – uh, I mean, we'd be so much more successful by now. Yeah, like we would, we would. I don't want to like make it out like we someone would hand us a bag full of million dollars, but there would be legitimate, you know, at the very least, like I don't know, some speaking engagements or or more writing opportunities. The fact that we don't want to go down that road because that's not our politics restricts us. I think if you're willing to just be that guy who like shows up on Fox News and and can really stoke anti-government sentiment in this case, or not really anti-government because Trump is a government, but anti-expert sentiment. Um, I think he's doing it in, in the unhealthy way rather than the healthy way, I guess is is the way I'd put it. Yeah, there is, you know, so have you ever gotten invited to go on Fox News? I have not. I guess my invitation got lost in the mail. Yeah. So I have, and I haven't done it. And the reason I haven't done it is because I've I've only gotten invited to go on Fox News to talk about the problems with the left, which I just don't want to do, in part because it would be like, it might be like good for my career in the short term, but long term, it would not be good for my career. That said, I really appreciate when people like Angela Nagel or Glenn Greenwald or Bernie Sanders go on Fox News. I wish that they would do it. I like I appreciate it that they do it because I don't think there's anything wrong with crossing ideological lines. And in fact, I think it's incredibly important to cross ideological lines. And Fox News has a fucking very big audience. And if you can reach a few people in that audience and maybe make them inspect their own beliefs, I think that's like hugely valuable. But the cost to your career or your like your reputation on the left is so high when you cross that line that it makes it not worth it. Yeah. Although I, I feel like the um as things get crazier and more hysterical, maybe some of the, the incentives are changing. Like I uh, when I wrote a controversial article about gender dysphoria stuff, I did an interview on the Quillette Pop. You? <laughs> yeah. You did? No, it's very surprising. Uh <laughs> subject for another day. But I I got to read that one someday. It's very long. I got paid $8 million for it according to the internet. But, I heard that. Um, I went on the Quillette podcast and Quillette is like, I think a bit to the right of where I'd be comfortable writing for them. Although they're, they're complicated. That could be a good subject for us someday, the Quillette phenomenon. But the point is I went on the podcast. Of course, a subset of people on Twitter shrieked that I went on the podcast, ignoring the fact that they couldn't even figure out what I said they disagreed with because – I didn't say anything crazy. Um, well, they also probably didn't listen to the interview. They did, of course. No, of course they didn't listen. Which was like, I listened to this and this was Jonathan Kay in, uh, uh, interviewed you and it was a great interview because he wasn't like, he wasn't like, he was allowing you to actually tell your perspective and he's quite a good questioner and he's curious and he knows, it, like he's done the reading. So it wasn't this sort of like, like a gotcha interview while he, where he's trying to like, uh, like attack you or he wasn't trying to sort of even boost your perspective. He actually just allowed you to like lay out what you said, which was of course that, you know, that all trans women are molesters and that they should be you know, a race from the world. Yeah, exactly. That was more or less the argument. <laughs> no, but it, it was interesting because like <clears throat> that article did obviously draw some interest from the right. And I got a couple like interview requests. Um, 
the right so desperately wanted to read that article and and find in it the little sliver of like, oh, lefties are so crazy. Whereas people on the left read an article that was basically like, youth youth transition is good, just make sure kids are properly diagnosed. And and just wanted to sort of dis- it's just so weird like the way different people have different incentives for how they read the same piece of information I guess is what I'm getting at and it it becomes very complicated when you're trying to figure out who to engage with and who to write for you know if you're lucky enough to have some options and um, yeah maybe we should this would all be stuff for us to go into more depth on at some point at some point sure in finishing up this Berenson segment I, I I'm curious so when you have sort of right wingers sniffing around. Like, how do you determine? So you said you didn't go on Fox News, but do you have a more general rule for like when you're comfortable engaging with them, or worried that they're they're going to use you or co-opt you? Because I definitely feel like I've had that happen. Yeah, I don't have a general rule. It sort of depends on the show. Um, it depends on the subject. I've been on a conservative radio show in Seattle several times. It's sort of the token like right wing radio station here, um, and I actually really like it. Um, the host is this guy Dory Monson, and um, the paper that I work for. I'm sure everybody there would like like be sort of appalled that I enjoy talking to Dory. But he has a very different perspective than me. And he has me on the show to talk about things that we disagree with. So like last time I was on the show, I think I was talking about how I had like made an argument that professional football should be banned, um, which is not, you know, a popular, a popular position among conservatives in in like Seahawks country. You know, um, the thing is, I got what I wanted. It turns out in the end, sports are all banned. Um, But so I can talk about him on things that we like really disagree and we can have some sort of dialectic and like we're not going to change each other's opinion, but it's sort of fun. Um, And in some ways, you know, it's way less pressure than having a sort of debate with somebody who's who I agree with on 90 or 95 or 99% of the issues because there isn't this pressure to like come to like a total 100% agreement. So I don't get mad at him. He doesn't get mad at me because we realize we're never going to agree on this stuff and we can just sort of have a conversation and it doesn't get heated. Um, Whereas like, you know, if I'm talking with somebody who I agree with on most of the issues and and then we have some slight disagreement, it's sort of the narcissism of small differences where we just can't get over this one tiny point, whatever it is. There is something a little bit liberating in being like in a conversation with someone where you know your fundamental values diverge wildly from theirs because it's like there's a a certain lack of common ground that's so profound that that the narcissism of small differences thing isn't going to kick in right right yeah i i actually really enjoy talking to talking to conservatives um which is not something that i would have you know said five or six years ago or maybe even three years ago but i think that we can like argue in a way that actually ends up being more productive and can i give you a hypothetical media request and see how you respond to it on the spot sure so pretend you're reading an email. <laughs> Dear Katie, my name is Hans German, and I wanted to interview for American Nazi Party Radio about why trans women are women. How would you respond to that? So is my position in this radio, in this, uh, in this, in this hypothetical interview that trans women are women? Or, or <laughs> Actually, wait, I don't. Let's delete that. I would, okay. Let's delete it. I would, I, I would, I would delete that. I would delete that one. Uh, you know, I have gotten like, I've gotten, uh, I've gotten like multiple inter, um, invitations to write for RT. Um, and I have, I, I have not taken them up on that. If the economy continues to tank, that might change. But there are some things that like, it's just, it's just not worth it. Like, even if I was like desperate for money, it's just not worth it. Because like, even if I were writing the exact same piece that I was going to write for The Stranger or The Guardian or whoever, 
it's just not worth it because the like the repercussions to my reputation are just too high, which I think is a little bit stupid. Um, but like, that's the reality of the, you know, the market that we, that we operate in now. But aren't we supposed to do it? Like if we're trying to build a new podcast, we're supposed to say yes to almost everything. Like I, there've been a few interview yeah. requests I just haven't responded to for like random podcasts. I feel like we're supposed to get the word out there. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, American Nazi party, um, you know, uh, you've got our email address. So, <laughs> so if you want, <laughs> have us on our show you know like okay so you know red scare had steve bannon on their show a couple weeks ago yeah and of course there's this like outcry about it as there was when uh david remnick from the new yorker invited steve bannon to be um you know the new yorker festival and then all of these people canceled i hate that shit i actually want to hear steve bannon you know and and i don't want to hear him on fox news i want to i want to hear him in a in an audience of an audience that isn't sympathetic to him um and so i really like so for me the decision of whether or not to take a media opportunity or whatever to do an interview really unfortunately comes down to like how much is this gonna like be a pain in my ass on twitter which i which i hate i totally hate that i have to think about it like this but i do yeah um and i you know i i think that like speaking across ideological lines is is can be very productive it can be you know it can be good you can make a difference in some ways um and i wish that just the the repercussions for doing that weren't so high um on like a reputational and sort of career level yeah but they are it's the world we live in. Well, yeah. I mean, so Anderson Cooper wanted me to take over his hosting gig for a while, but I was like, I, <laughs> Anderson, I can't. Like, CNN is just too too centrist for me. So we all, oh, yeah. we all make totally, sacrifices totally. like that from time to time. Yeah. Well, I well, plus you were, you're too busy hosting this podcast. Yeah, exactly. There's a lot of stuff in there that I think we should talk about more in depth in the future. But for now, I wanted to talk about what I call online validity discourse. Please explain that. There's this thing in a lot of online spaces, particularly those populated by the young and the lefty, where people make big shows out of proclaiming that everything is valid. And we're going to introduce some terminology here that I'm not sure all our listeners will be familiar with, but pan means pansexual, ace means asexual, means you're not attracted to anyone. So let me give you a tweet example. This is an all cap, so imagine it being screamed very loudly from a, from a soapbox. <laughs> Bi, pan, ace plus in heteronormative relations are still queer. You are valid. You are enough. You are loved. <laughs> yeah, so this is basically saying if you're someone who says you're asexual, meaning you have no sexual re- attraction to anybody, but you're in a heteronormative sexual relationship, you're still valid. You're still asexual. Even though your label seems to go against the essence of who you are, you're valid. Another example of this. <laughs> this is also all caps. These tweets tend to be all caps. It's a, it's a little asterisk thing that says cough, like to get someone's attention. <clears throat> cough. Desire and attraction are different. And if you're ace who experiences desire, you are valid. If you don't, you are valid. So it's the same idea. If you're asexual, but you're sexually attracted to people, you're still asexual because, quote, desire and attraction are different. I don't know what that means. I don't know what that means either. It's like you might be valid, but you're also confusing the shit out of me. Yeah, which gets to one of the, the things we should discuss, which is what what does valid mean anyway? But so it looks like I'm just sort of pulling random tweets. But but you find this a lot in like younger online spaces. There's this huge premium put on the concept of validity. And it, it comes up so often that I think it is doing some sort of really important work. And I haven't been able to put my finger on what it is. I think in our everyday understanding of the word, valid means what? It means like correct, right? Uh, 
I don't, I mean, correct. Does it mean correct or does it just mean like important? Like you have, it means valid. No, you say like a valid, a valid comparison is a correct comparison. Okay, true. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah. But they're clearly not saying like, if you're asexual, but you have a lot of sex with people, you, you're valid in the sense of being, I guess it like carves out a new definition for these terms, right? So asexual becomes like a, like you're part of some online social club rather than a description of your actual orientation. Is that, do you think that's right? Yeah. I mean, I think that's what a, what a lot of the, the contemporary or the, the, the current discourse is about is using these labels to sort of as a, a tribal identifier or, you know, as an identity that is a lesser reflection of behavior. But it's so weird to me because like, even when I was growing up, things were still pretty, I mean, I was in a liberal suburb, but things were pretty like homophobic and, and sexual diversity wasn't valued. So the idea of someone who isn't actually asexual building an online identity around the claim they are asexual and then getting mad if people say, hey, you don't seem to be asexual. And again, if you're not online, you don't see this stuff. But it all happens a lot. Like, how do you how do you start to explain? This? I mean, it's uh, God, to me, it's so much of it is about like, like I'm in this Facebook group. That's called like non-binary validation. And I'm not in this Facebook group because I um, am non-binary seeking validation. I'm in this Facebook group because it's fucking hilarious. And you will regularly see people post photos of themselves that say things like, please affirm me. And then there will be a hundred comments of somebody saying like, you look so non-binary today. You look great, whatever, just these compliments. And this to me seems like a, like another continuation of that is just this like this constant desire to get affirmation from mostly from strangers, which I guess I sort of understand in some way because like I'm on Twitter and I'm a writer and like part of yeah. what we do is like get affirmation um, or try to get affirmation um, that's like it's all a little bit performative in some way but I also find it kind of insane that you're gonna like post a picture of yourself and ask people for compliments that just seems like very odd behavior like sociopathic unstable behavior to me um, in the same way that validity discourse does yeah well I guess a few things first of all aren't you gonna get kicked out of that group now like instantly um, I don't think they're going to be listening to this podcast, so I'm not super worried about it. But yes, if they discovered that I was in it, they would, I'm sure, kick me out. Uh, but then I would also have, um, I have some spies in the group who would just send me some screenshots, and then I'll send them to you. <laughs> it seems like a, a lot of sociologists and others have pointed out that over the last several decades, people have less and less of like a connection to other people and to meaningful real world groups, whether it's unions or churches or clubs. If you see, like, imagine a 12-year-old coming up in this era and they a lot of their social life is online, especially if they're, like, a, a weirdo or an outcast. I use those terms with love, of course. I can sort of see how they would gravitate toward this idea that, like, I, I need other people I don't know to validate me and to tell me my identity is real, right? That's not Oh, ridiculous. my God. Wait, Jesse. Yeah. Jesse. Okay. I, like, I just, like, I just, like, phased out and stopped listening to you for a second and I opened up Twitter and I clicked on a hashtag. The hashtag was... It's the LGBTQ, and the first post that comes up is a picture of someone, like two photos of this uh, person who looks like a woman. Um, she's got her like shirt up so you can see her belly, and it, it says asexuals are LGBTQ+, aromantic are LGBTQ+, we are here, we are queer, and we deserve to be seen. Hashtag, it's the LGBTQ. 
<laughs> it's fucking Validity Discourse is trending today. Thank you. I knew it. I, I am always one step ahead of the trends. Um, okay. Anyway. Okay. I'm, I'm listening to you again now. What'd you say? Well, no, I'm just saying like, um, I think if you have kids, especially like nerdy outcast kids who don't have a maybe the best real world ties to other people and are living in a country where like real world ties are increasingly devalued. And now like illegal. Yeah, exactly. Literally illegal. You're going to see like them grasp for identity somewhere, right? Right. Well, yeah, I guess so. You're right. I mean, it's just like right now, it's like what we call identity. I think when you and I, or the word that most people use for identity, I think when you and I were in high school, it would have been like your clique, yeah. you know? And I totally get that. Like my identity as like a pain in the ass as a, as a teenager was incredibly important to me. And I like needed to really be a pain in the ass, but I never would have called that identity it was just like it was your clique it was the group that you were in i guess maybe it seems like a a superficial or fragile sort of identity because like my my identity as a writer feels pretty intrinsic to me and you know there's a component of needing external validation but but it's a deep-seated part of me right discovering a, a new label and then instantly being treating yourself as being wounded if people don't immediately accept that level, it just seems like you're sort of asking for disappointment or, or or trying to force the world to see you in a way it might not see you. Yeah, and I think there's a difference between your identity, quote unquote, and I have become like a major hater of that word, being something wrapped up in something that you do, like being a writer or an athlete or whatever, and something that you just sort of like a demographic, you know, like a check mark on a box, like like yeah, my identity as a writer. Is much more important than my identity as a homosexual because like it's my work you know what I mean it's just like it's something that you actually cultivate and work on and spend years doing and not just like you know the person that you sleep with I, I find it much more, I find like my identity with work much more important than any sort of a like I don't know demographic demographic data one of the worst articles written during the democratic primary was in slate and it was it was about Pete Buttigieg I've already forgotten that he like barely he didn't drop out that long ago. I've already forgotten how to pronounce his name. Buttigieg. Buttigieg. Pete Mayor Buttigieg. Pete. And and the point of this article, which was written by someone who I believe is a lesbian, was like uh, Pete didn't center the marginalization of gay people enough when he talked about being gay. I was just thinking like uh, this is I'm venturing outside my lane here, but maybe you can you can validate my my belief. I do not think the average gay or lesbian person in 2020 America walks around thinking about their identity in those terms. I think other aspects of their identity are likely to be much more important than their sexual orientation in terms of their everyday conception of themselves, right? Yeah. I mean, if I woke up tomorrow and I were heterosexual, like shit would be definitely different and I have to make some life choices. And I think my my wife would be very Your surprised. wife would be pissed. She would be, She'd be pissed, pissed about She'd that. be pissed. <laughs> Do you think that if you woke up as a heterosexual, you could still get away with uh, dressing as a ferry operator? <laughs> you know, that's a great question. Um, I'm going to try it. I'll let you know uh, what happens tomorrow. That would honestly, if I if I woke up gay and I had to, we're, we're among friends here. No one's ever going to hear this. But, yeah. but I, I do not think I could get away with dressing the way I could, um, which is just horrible. And I think that would require... It would just be so exhausting. I actually have to put some effort into how I present myself. So, you I know, I as a as my my close personal uh, my close personal friend Dan Savage is also um, sort of a jeans and t shirt guy. So I think you could uh, I think you can get away with. It. I think he actually wore jeans and t shirt to the White House. Oh wow! Um, so I think you could continue to be um, to be sort of a uh, you know a, a jeans and t shirt dude and, and still um, be welcome to my people. Uh, you you'd still be valid. But he sort of has that like slender frame, right? I would maybe I need to tone down a little bit. I mean, he is a. Uh, um, 
he he works out a lot. His his jeans and t-shirts hang well on him. Let's say that. We've been getting a lot of emails from readers saying we don't talk enough about Dan Savage's body. So I just, <laughs> that's why I brought that up. Wait till they, you know, the, Dan Savage's body is pretty incredible, but Dan Savage's husband's body, that's the, like, check him out on Instagram. I, I highly you recommend know, everyone do that. You know what's even more incredible? What? Dan Savage's mind. It, it is incredible. He's probably <sighs> listening to this right now, so shout out to Dan. I was already thinking about this validity stuff. Then The Daily, the New York Times Excellent Podcast, um, they've started running some podcast where they just have someone read one of their long form articles. There's a great times magazine article from a week and a half ago called the weirdly enduring appeal of weird Al Yankovic. It's by Sam Anderson. This is just a wonderful, wonderful profile of a guy who seems just awesome. And I, I, you know, probably know and love seven of weird Al songs. I'm not a fan in any real sense, but he just seems like a, a genuinely wonderful person. A, a mensch, as we would say, as my people would say. And there's this one part that had to do with validity that, that really sort of tripped me up as I was thinking this stuff through. Weird Al's bond with his fans is atomic. He will stop and speak with them anywhere. At airports, outside the tour bus, for so long that it becomes a logistical problem. The fans approach him like a guru. And Weird Al responds with sweet, open, validating energy. Joel Miller, the friend who defended Yankovic from college bullies, said the relationship between Weird Al and his hardcore fans is deeply personal. He's giving them validation, he told me. They feel a kindred spirit. When they're at his concerts, they're in a safe space. They're able to be stupid or outlandish or whatever, exactly as they want. And nobody judges them. In fact, it's the opposite. People appreciate them for what they are, not for what they aren't. So, so Katie, I, I wondered if I was being unfair because I listened to that and it's heartwarming. Like this idea that these kids, Weird Al helps them feel like whatever they are, it's fine. He's validating them. He's, like there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, is that different from like validation based on some label that might not fit? Do you think like, am I missing something in this comparison? I don't know. I mean, I think the difference is that one is like a club based on interest and the other one is based on these sort of intractable. Well, I don't even think they're really intractable because a lot of these labels are um, sort of made up, (laughs) (laughs) made up in the past five years. But like, let's just say sexuality, right? Let's just like assume that all sexuality is valid, right? So something that I think most most, you know, of the experts that we know would argue cannot be changed, right? This is just like, you're born with it, or there's like some environmental factors or whatever, we don't entirely know what causes sexual orientation, but this is not something that can really be changed. And so the difference to me is like, it's like having a club based on, you know, on a mutual interest on something that like, that you like are passionate about and having it based on some, like some way that you're born. And maybe, I mean, maybe there is no difference there. I mean, there are, there are literal clubs for like queer people or black people or white, uh, actually clubs for white people is maybe a, maybe a different, <laughs> maybe as a Ooh, like, can I, different I'd flavor. love to join that. That sounds yeah. super fun. You don't count, Jesse. We've been over this. Oh yeah. Personal um, sexism. Right. So I don't know. I mean, I guess that's, you know, I, I guess, like I bristle so much at online validity discourse that I don't want to say that these like dorks who love Weird Al are the same as people who are arguing about, you know, the the validity of their made up, you know, 
uh, identity terms, but maybe they are. I mean, and then maybe, you know, maybe that'll be the next thing to like hit Twitter bios will be like, you're, you know, LGBTQ red rose, uh, red rose avatar thing, a like a rainbow flag, um, all of your your identifiers. And then it'll also be like your actual hobbies. Um, <laughs> right. Well, maybe. So I think that that's maybe the key distinction. Like, so if someone comes up to Weird Al after a concert and says, like, you've made me feel like it's better to be myself. I think whatever myself entails would be like some weird set of interests, like a kid who likes to juggle or is into magic cards or something that, that really brings him intrinsic pleasure. Whereas a kid saying a kid who has sexual attraction, but calls himself asexual and demands, you know, a certain level of recognition or validation on the basis of that. It's, it's a little bit more flimsy and superficial because it's sort of like, what are you validating? All, all you can really validate is that they call themselves this thing that they don't appear to be, which feels like a immature or disingenuous form of validation. Yeah, yeah, totally. I also just like the, you know, why would anybody identify as asexual if they feel sexual attraction? I don't really see the benefit to that other than like uh, having a like more narrow, more special identity which we prize for some reason like the more rare your identity the, the like more valuable it is um I, like like can you get laid if you're you know if you're an asexual <laughs> experience a sexual attraction i would love to know the answer to that. it's just weird like I, I know we're not supposed to actually talk about any of this realistically or in the real world because that like it, it punctures the bubble but okay if you're actually asexual that obviously brings some awkwardness and peer pressure and stuff in terms of dating but to, it seems weird to lump yourself into a category that includes like gay and lesbian and trans people who could really like face physical assault in much of the world just for being out in the world as themselves. Like you don't really <laughs> face much of a threat for walking around being asexual. It could definitely bring it could definitely bring like certain challenges, and but it just seemed like there's this effect to like flatten everything and to, for people in vastly different situations to act like they're equally oppressed, I guess. Yeah, I think that asexual people probably for sure face some stigma. I mean, I'm like, you know, we're making fun of them right now. Um, so that's that's definitely real. But they don't have like legal barriers um, that I think, you know, yeah, th th you're not going to get like stoned to death for being asexual, probably. Um, like, you're you're saying that when world. you guys got married, the officiant was I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna marry you unless you have sex right now in front of me. He said, "I'm not gonna marry you until all asexual people also have the right to marry." <laughs> what they do, you, you know, so and like, noble. and lots of marriages are asexual marriages. You know, maybe what these people need is just to like get married and like be together for a few years, and they will, you know, they will find that all marriages are asexual. What, what's interesting to me is like if you look at some of the Tumblr writing on this of kids trying to figure out like, am I asexual? Am I aromantic? Oftentimes, the way they'll explain it, they'll be like, well, sometimes I'm sexually attracted to someone who I don't really like as a person. And sometimes I, I like someone as a perfect person, but I'm not sexually attracted. It's just like, this is literally just growing. It's not an identity. Yeah, exactly. Right. It's, not, it's like trying to create a carve out a new identity category out of just basic human stuff that everybody feels, which, you know, maybe it's just a transitional phase to growing up, but it just seems weird and maybe... I don't know. It doesn't seem like necessarily the most healthy approach. I mean, it also seems like it could be, and I'm and I'm being totally serious here. It also seems like it could be a medical issue. I mean, if you have low libido, the first like if I had low libido, the first thing I would do would probably like talk to my doctor, not like join a Tumblr group and like 
you know, start draping a flag around myself. I mean, you like you might have like Katie, Katie, you, you promised we weren't you promised we weren't going to talk about my problem <laughs> on the air. Come on. I'm sorry, Jesse. Go to a doctor. Um, you know, it, it like so that also seems to me like an, a weird angle about this that like people who identify as asexual, it could be an identity. It could also be a fucking medical problem. Yeah. The, okay. The actual last point on the segment I want to make is I, I think I really like some of your writing on straight couples adopting the queer label, which I know you're not a huge fan of. Right. right? Well, it depends on the straight couple, I suppose. Um, you know, so I do find it aggravating. I find that I'm less aggravated by this stuff every day because it's like more and more common and I'm becoming desensitized to it. But it totally happens. Like I had a friend years ago who is absolutely 100% heterosexual has never hooked up with a, a like been in a same sex relationship hooked up with a woman before and wrote her um wrote her like essay to get into film school about how she was queer and she's fucking not and she got into film Jesus. school um she's married to a man now and not that you can't you know my wife is is like considers herself bisexual i don't want to like invalidate the fact that bisexual identities exist they absolutely do um unfortunately and uh, so like that's real, but there is another subset of people who are just sort of glomming onto the label because I think they, they think it's cool and uh, it's fucking aggravating or maybe they think it's real. Maybe they think that like, just because you can like tell that someone is attractive, that automates automatically makes you like same sex attracted, which is I think also kind of bullshit. I mean, maybe the answer here is that we all revert to the Kinsey scale and you identify yourself by your number and not your label. And that would be at least a little bit more precise. I'm a seven. So you're saying we should, if I'm understanding you correctly, you're saying we should tattoo numbers on people's arms. <laughs> a string of them. Yeah. It, it feels like we've come a very long way since the Weezer song, Pink Triangle. Do you remember that one? <laughs> I do remember that one. Um, yeah. Well, we're, let's go back to that. You can get a pink triangle and then a number. Um, you, how about a number within your pink, your pink triangle so it's a little bit less problematic? A little less triggering. No bad ideas in podcasting. Yeah, totally. Okay, so that, I mean, that about wraps up the show. We did have uh, one more quick programming note. Uh, first of all, you can contact us at lockedinreportedpodcast at gmail.com. We're on Twitter at the bar pod. Uh, yeah, iTunes, keep giving us those reviews. We do really appreciate them. We appreciate the good ones. The good ones. And they have, they've been good. It's been, it's been very um, gratifying to see. Thank you, Karen, for your Cowan. review. Karen. Cowan. Cowan. No, it's an imposter. You're not okay. You're introducing the speech better. It's Ken. I anyway, can hear you, Kellen. So the one thing we we want to talk about is we do not yet know what sort of our our monetization strategy is. We obviously would like to try to make some money off this, if only to offset the cost. We're considering some sort of Patreon situation. We're leaning toward just making the weekly episode always free. This isn't set in stone. We think we're going to make the weekly episode always free and then offer something more to Patreons, some combination of extra episodes, uh, online sort of Discord or Twitch hangouts. So what we could really- And cam sessions. And cam sessions. I will cam girl. Jesse's ca- Jesse's cam girl. <laughs> How much will you pay for me to not cam girl for you? That's <laughs> So uh, we have not yet figured this out, as you can tell, but what we could really use, especially from you know uh, people who have listened to multiple episodes at this point is sort of if you think you would contribute five or ten bucks a month just shoot us an email blocked and reported podcast at gmail.com let us know what you're thinking in terms of what sort of perks you would be looking for you know what a, a reasonable price point would be for you again this isn't like something where we're going to flip the switch tomorrow because we're still figuring it out but i think we we've been really happy with the numbers so far and we do want to do it sooner rather than later katie am i forgetting anything 
Um, no, if you also own a mattress company or a toothbrush company or stamps.com and you would like to give us money, we will also take it. Yeah, if you own Microsoft, um, you know, it's like a computer company, we could definitely do a really expensive ad. That'd be great. Or a pot company, too. And if it's a pot company, you can just pay in pot and uh, and just give it directly to me because I think it's still illegal where Jesse is. Yes. Yeah. And American Nazi Party. Sorry, guys. Like, that's just a no-go. We're not going to advertise you on our podcast, just to be clear. Depends on how the Patreon goes. This has been Blocked and Reported. I'm Jesse Single. And remember, you are valid. And I'm Katie Herzog. And also remember, you're valid unless you're a pansexual ace romantic. Mm-hmm.